can continue to celebrate and turn to his word if you get your copy of scripture out and open to Hosea chapter 11 or you can turn in that pew bible in front of you to page 1047 right there in the old testament Daniel Hosea if you get to Joel you went too far We're going to look at a beautiful picture this morning from Hosea chapter 11 and be able to relate it to our lives and the way God works in our lives. And uh, it's just astonishing to me at uh, the clarity and goodness of God's Word and how relevant it is to our situation and our circumstances. Um, When I was very... Early on, just beginning in ministry, uh, every Sunday morning, uh, this building, of course, didn't even exist. We were over there in that metal building where Kingdom Kids is now. And uh, so we would meet together and a group of men, and we'd pray for the services as a group of men still pray now. For these services, and so we we'd meet and pray, and and there was a an old longtime member of Michael Memorial. The, a few of you in the room would remember, but this is twenty plus years ago, most twenty five years ago, probably for sure. Mr. Cecil would come in every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, and he'd pray for Jack O'Taylor. I didn't even know who Jack O'Taylor was probably for a year or two, and every Sunday. And every so often he'd come and he'd be extra excited and he'd share with us how he got to share the gospel with Jacko. He, I don't know how many times he shared the gospel with Jacko, but I'm sure Jacko was sick of seeing him because he was all the time. And Jacko, he lived down the street from him and so he couldn't get away from him. And here we are 20 plus years later. And uh, boy, what a reunion that'll be when Cecil sees you in heaven, boy. That's going to be a hug like no tomorrow. And as have so many of you in the room, and it's just a, a fitting moment to look at Hosea 11. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for yourself. Thank you for who you are, the way that you are. God, rid us of the way that we are and make us more like the way that you are. Take these words that you have spoken and given to us and you have sealed for for all time for your people to know and understand things about your character and nature. Lord, will you help us this morning to see those things with spiritual eyes? We're dependent upon you to give us ears to hear, Lord. Holy Spirit, come move in this time. Prepare our hearts to receive we, we enter into this time in a, already in a spirit of gratitude for all that you've done and anticipating what you may do. We thank you for how the blessings of knowing you come through so many unexpected 
ways and unexpected places and things and times, Lord. But when they come, we know that it's your good hand who has brought them into our lives and we receive them with joy. And so thank you for the joy of following you. We give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when you think about the book of Hosea, you, 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 have, to, you have to continually remind yourself of the, the shocking, uh, unnatural nature of what you're reading and what we're talking about. In other words, you know, every week I'm, I'm reminding you that, you know, God called this faithful man who was devoted to following him, his prophet, his man. He called him to, to marry a prostitute and start a family. And that's shocking, but, but think of all that that symbolizes and the way that God is, is using this to teach us. I mean, just the simple fact that the key to any betrayal, any betrayal, is surprise, right? Betrayal only works in surprise, and yet God comes to Hosea, and he doesn't say, go get married. I'll explain later. It's one of those rare places in Scripture, which is normally what God does, but it's one of those rare places in Scripture where God comes and in advance says, well, let me give you a couple, you know, a snapshot of where we're headed here. You're going to marry a wife of whoredom, and you're going to start a family. And he tells him up front, and Hosea goes in obedience and does just as God has commanded him to do. And you think, you know, Hosea walks into a relationship of betrayal fully knowing that there's no surprise. It's like he willingly walked into betrayal. And God's showing us part of his character and his nature. This is the same God who washed Judas' feet. There was no surprise in that betrayal. God knew the moment he called Judas to follow him. Jesus knew what he would do. But he loved him. He treated him. Like the other disciples, so much so that when he announced at the Last Supper that there was a, a betrayer among them, that they began to question, well, who could it be? And Is it me? Who is it? No, it's not like everybody knew because they, there was no difference in the way Jesus treated him. And then he washed his feet just like he did the others. Just before the betrayal happened. And then... So we see Hosea committing himself wholly and completely to somebody who he knew would hurt him. But he did it anyway. I mean, just imagine. I all Over the, these weeks, it's just been such a battle for me because I, I, I can't help but, but just relive my own calling into ministry through the lens of Hosea. And I, and I, I think back on how difficult it was to... to finally surrender to God in something that seemed so impossible, and yet, my goodness, compared to Hosea, I mean, 
welcome to the ministry. Marry a prostitute, start a family, love her, care for her, continue to pursue her no matter how many times she abandons you. Because your life is going to be a living example of the way I love my people and the way my people betray me. So when we get to Hosea 11, we, we see this incredible picture. If you have your listening guide, we're going to start, we're going to frame our, our time this morning together around this idea that Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids. That's what Jesus is. He's the, the, the embodiment of God's heart for wayward kids. And that sounds like something that we would fully grasp and fully get, but I don't think that that's actually the case. And so we're going to look at three ways that he is this and that this text will show us that he is. And the first one is so that they will or so that we will recognize, recognize Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids so that they will recognize. Look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. I want us to think for a second about how in our minds, look at what God is saying here. Look, look at this is like we're, we're sitting down. Because in the previous chapters, what we've done is we've sort of been in the, the counseling room and in this broken marriage, and God has laid out all, you know, his side of the story. He's told us everything that has happened in this relationship. Now we've we've the counselors come over to the house for a home visit, and we're sitting there on the couch looking through the photo albums. We're watching the home movies. When the kids were small, when they were growing up, we're, we're getting a, a, some framework of how all this began from the very beginning. And for us, listen, I cannot overstress this point, is that for us so oftentimes the outcome, when it comes to God asking us to do things, God convicting our heart to do things, the outcome determines our answer. In other words, our perception of, listen, it's not about the fact that God's asking. It should be. But for us, so oftentimes, it's about the outcome. God's calling me to do this, and then we start thinking about what is the outcome, and that's what we use to determine whether or not we're going to be obedient, which is completely and utterly wrong and backwards. Completely. But that's what we do. See, because we, we, we want to do things that 
work. We want to do things that are, that are successful, right? That's what we want to do. But what if God's called you to do something that doesn't work in your eyes? It's not successful in your understanding. Think of Hosea. God's called him to do something. It seems like a disaster. Imagine you're friends with Hosea. And he comes to you for advice. I mean, honestly, what would you have told him? Guaranteed, most of us in the room would have told Hosea, you clearly have heard God wrong. That's what we would have said. You, 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 bro, you need to go back and check that. God would never, God's not going to say that. God's not going to do that. God's a winner. God wins. God succeeds. God, you see, we humanize the, 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 we try to humanize the rationale of faith and that will not work. It will not work. It will not work. Listen, I need you to understand, God's focus is not on successfulness. It's on faithfulness. It's on faithfulness. Now, now I'm going to just try, try to paint a picture for you, okay? This is, this is from my life and from many lives in this room and in this fellowship. Nowhere is this more evident to me than with foster care and adoption. Nowhere. Suppose you adopt a child. The minute you move into foster care, you're going to have multitudes of Christian people around you that are going to try to talk you out of it instantaneously every single time. Especially people who love you and care about you. Your parents, they're going to freak out. And they're going to start telling you all the stories about all the people that they know that did this and it went south and it went bad and it's negative. And it's, they're going to tell you all sorts of things like that. And Lord, when you announce you're going to adopt a child, there's so many people that are just going to be like, that's just a bad idea. And I know this person, and they adopted a child, and it just turned out terrible, and all, all, all these things. Supposing you adopt a child, and the child develops a debilitating disease. Maybe you adopt a child who you already knew has a debilitating disease or the child develops a debilitating disease where the child becomes maybe uh, unable to walk or speak or move, whatever the case may be. And you become a lifelong caregiver for this child whom you've adopted. And let's just be honest. The world around you is going to look at that situation and say, look at that. Their whole life has been wasted because of this. That's what they're going to say. Their whole life has just been ruined because of this. That's what the Christian world is going to say. That's what they're going to say. It's what some of you will say. Oh, you're supportive as long as everybody else is adopting kids or going into foster care, but don't let somebody in your family do it or you're going to be against it. Or what, if they, what if you adopt a child and the child goes... Just, uh, becomes a teenager and decides to adopt a life of lawlessness and you become a lifelong sufferer at the hands of the lawlessness and the prodigalness of your, of your son or daughter. Huh? What a waste. What a tragedy. What a pain. What a, what a terrible thing. What a, oh, if, you know.
What a shame. No, what a shame is the blindness of the world. You see, when becoming a Christian, it exempts us from God's condemnation, but it does not exempt us from God's evaluation of our lives. Now, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. God is evaluating our lives, Christians. And this, this uh, fantasy that we've created whereby once I'm saved, I'm good and everything's going to be fine. And, you know, we're all going to heaven and it's all going to be wonderful and nothing can end that or stop that. And so it really doesn't matter. And, well, is that how it's going to go? Let me tell you something. When you sell all your possessions and move to some foreign country to be a missionary, you, you load up your little kids and your wife and you take them to this dangerous place or whatever the case may be for the sake of the gospel and, and all these people are saying how crazy you are. And you get there and you struggle along and there's very little progress and maybe one of your children contracts malaria or something and dies or your wife gets critically ill or whatever the case may be. And So many people in their heart will think, well, you see, that's why I'm just going to play it safe. That's why I'm not going to do that. Because look at what it cost them. Man. Tony and Lisa worked their whole life. I mean, it could be, this is the time when I should be playing golf and going on vacation, enjoying myself and not doing math homework and running kids from here to there. Let me tell you something. God's evaluating, and here's what he's evaluating based on. He's evaluating based on what we do in this life, and it's going to have eternal implications. All the people that responded to God, that said yes to God and did things that looked crazy to everybody else around them, here's what you've got to understand. Oh, yeah, it was hard in this life. Oh, yeah, it looked like a fail in this life. But you're going to know who every one of those people are for all of eternity. You know why? Because it's going to be different for them in heaven than it is for everybody else. Did you hear what I just said? Different. It's not going to be the same for everybody. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be amazing for everybody, but it's not going to be equally amazing for everybody. That's not what the Bible teaches. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought our good works don't matter. That's where you were wrong. Your good works didn't matter pre-salvation. Your good works had nothing to do with you getting saved. But your works after salvation make a huge difference. A huge difference. 
And you think God's just oblivious to, to what we're doing now in Christ? Oh, no. Listen, good works can't earn you a place in heaven. That's only by the grace of God. But good works do earn you rewards in heaven. 100%. And they're eternal rewards. And we don't deserve them. We didn't earn them, but God gives them. And we'll receive them. And the people who have walked in obedience in this life will be rewarded for all of eternity. For all of eternity. See, it looks foolish to, 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 to give it all away, this little blip, doesn't it? It, it looks foolish in this little, little, little sliver, the vapor, the mist of this life. But that's because the world is so short-sighted. Like, how, how do we know here that this isn't all there is? But yet we live like it is. We make decisions like it is. You'll see. The theologian Norman Geisler, I love what he says about this. He says, everyone in heaven will be fully blessed, but not everyone will be equally blessed. He says, every cup in heaven will be full, but not every cup is the same size. Amen. And you're like, I just don't know about this. Too bad. Fill this in. God's not into participation trophies. I think a lot of people's theology is that it's just going to be a participation trophy, that we're going to go through the judgment seat of Christ, but, you know, it's going to be, everything's going to be judged, and the bad things are going to get burned up, and the good things are going to remain, and then we're going to, you know, get some crowns and give them back to Jesus, and none, none, but we all get to heaven with a participation trophy. That ain't what the Bible teaches. That's wrong. I mean, we're... That's what you want to be true. That's not true. 2 Corinthians 5, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You got that? Receive what is due. What about Revelation chapter 2? I will give to each one according to your works. I put some scriptures on the backside for your, in your discussion question, so when you get together, you can look those up and you can have a conversation about them. The clear teaching of scripture. The clear teaching of scripture. You can look at Matthew 25, Luke 19, the parable of the ten minas or the talents, and, and see clearly let me tell you something. God doesn't give participation trophies. You know why? Because God rejects the human false doctrine of fairness. Rejects that. And so should you. You should never say that's not fair. Never. That shows you are incredibly immature to say that. 
Because when you're walking with God, it has nothing to do with fairness. Nothing. So when you think about it, what, what determines whether or not you do the things God calls you to do? See, I'm just trying to push your buttons. I want you to think about it. What determines your yes or your no? Pain avoidance is always a terrible ultimate motivator in God's kingdom. Terrible. Now listen, I don't want pain, and I don't like pain. And if you want pain or like pain, you need serious medical, serious professional, probably inpatient care. I don't want it or like it, but I will never allow it to be my ultimate motivator in whether or not I do or don't do something, because that, is a, that will lead you astray every time. And I believe we live in a culture that is completely dominated by pain avoidance, and it's to our detriment. And for all of eternity, be a drastic reminder. For all of eternity. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians, which we will talk through the judgment seat of Christ in the coming months, but when the Bible says that there are some that are going to pass through as by smoke, come on. You think, you're, you think you're just going to be the same as everybody else? Come on. What kind of God do you think we serve? Well, you think all this is just a game? Like we're just playing the game, but when we get to the end, he goes, oh, I was just kidding. It was just for fun. Huh? I mean, come on. I mean, is the judgment seat of Christ just a big, what, what do you think it is? It's like just a big production, but it doesn't really mean anything? Huh? Come on. It's real. It matters. It matters. And what we see in this opening part of, of chapter 11 is we see how God, God works in the most mundane things. And we're constantly looking for the miraculous. We're constantly looking for these big, giant amazing things, which are wonderful when they come. But the primary way God works is just in the mundane things that we miss. See, sometimes we just need to be reminded when, when God's calling us to do something, we feel unsure about it. We feel uncertain about it. We need to remember all the little things that we've totally forgotten about along the way. You need to remember that God taught you how to walk. See, he called you. He stooped down and fed you. He wiped snot from your nose. When you were just a little baby, too young to realize or know the implications of what he was doing. He was working. He was working. He taught little Ephraim to walk. He took him up in his arms. You see that? He stooped and fed him. But so often, even our perception of his love is twisted by our sinful nature. This is what I mean. We think that we just learned to walk. We learn to eat. We think we just learned that. I'm talking about spiritually. We didn't just learn that. 
And listen, God used people in my life and in your life, but it was still God, not the people. It was God. God did that. God orchestrated that. The further along we are from salvation, the greater the danger it is for us to forget that he taught us to walk. The more likely you are to believe that, well, you've done your thing. You're, you know, you're, you're just waiting on your participation trophy. You in for a sad awakening. I'm living for eternity. Eternity. This life is not about this life. It's about the next. And it matters. Number two, so that they'll return. So that they'll recognize, first of all, just recognize that he taught us to walk, that he stooped down and fed us. Because so oftentimes we just miss it. And we just think, oh, no, that's not, I'm not doing, that's not going to work out. No, it's, it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we're using our own ideas to determine whether or not something's worthy or not to do. And then number two is to return. Well, why do we need to return? Well, look at verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call to me the Most High. None at all exalt him. See, here's what God's saying. The same God that taught us to walk is stooped down to feed us. who walked in knowing that we were going to betray him, but walked anyway. The same God. He knows that we're all prodigals by nature. That's our nature. It's our natural tendency. Our natural thing to do is to walk the opposite direction from God. Our flesh is completely dedicated and devoted to this task. We want to get away from our Heavenly Father. That's what we want to do. Now, we act like we don't. We sing songs like we don't. We, we you know, talk like we don't. But the truth is we do. That's what we do. We only want to move towards God when God's doing or saying something that we like or receive. We're constantly processing whatever God's doing or saying through the lens of what we think about it as if that matters. Who are we? What in the world does, I mean, just keep going back to who we're talking about. Imagine if Hosea were one of our contemporaries. Would he have done what he did? Would you have done that? And before you say yes, because my next question is, well, amen, what you doing now? Huh? What you doing? What, what betrayal have you walked into? Tell me what hard thing have you given yourself to that you didn't have to, but you did out of obedience. What is it? 
Now, there's a lot of people in this room who can answer that question honestly because they have. Praise God for you. But there's also a lot of people who ain't done nothing and aren't intending to do anything. I love you. You know that, right? I love you. I want you to change. I want you to let God work in your heart. Notice in verse 5, he says, he shall not return to Egypt. I want you to understand that salvation, we were forever freed from Egypt. Now, now they're returning somewhere. Where are they returning? They're going to Assyria. Now, God could have sent them back to Egypt, but he didn't. He sent them to Assyria. Why didn't he send them back to Egypt? Because it's symbolic of the fact that we can never go back to Egypt. Once you're saved, you can't go back to Egypt. And what that means is because what was in Egypt? Slavery. Once you're saved, you can never be ever enslaved again to sin. Now, you can give way to sin, but what you weren't enslaved to it. You've always got the power. I've always got the power to go the other way, to say no, to reject it, and to move forward. You can behave like you're back in Egypt. You can act like you're back in Egypt. You can even suffer consequences for your decisions and actions just like you were back in Egypt. But you can never be enslaved again like you were before salvation. Number three. So that they'll be retained. Retained. Jesus is the revelation of the Father's heart for his wayward kids. So that they will be retained. Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ever. Ever. He says in Philippians 1 that we should be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I want you to see something you've never seen. And most of you have been looking at that verse your whole life. But have you ever understood until the day of Jesus Christ? I don't mean when that is. This is what I mean. The work's done. And then from then on out, it's all of eternity based on what was done before that. That's what it means. There's no more work. In other words, you're not getting, you don't, there's no, you're not getting, you're not going to get crowns for obedience in heaven. You're going to experience heaven in accordance to the way you responded to God in your earthly life. So go ahead. Don't be generous. Don't take risks for God. Don't give yourself up 
as a living sacrifice. Play it safe. It's not going to work out the way you think. But understand that in this process, what God is showing us about his heart in this passage is that he doesn't have the capacity to quit. And so what, where it doesn't, look, it, 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 it doesn't matter what's happened prior to this very moment. In the economy of God, it's what's happening in this very moment. And then it's what's going to happen as a result of this very moment. That's the way God looks at things. Remember I said, but in, at salvation, we're free from God's condemnation. Well, part of being free from condemnation means that not only are we free from judgment of wrath and sin because it's been forgiven, but also, it, listen, it's even in Christ all of our yesterdays. He's not, he's not condemning you right now for all the things you haven't done in the past. It's about what's ahead, what's tomorrow, what's right now, what's God been speaking to you about that you've been refusing to move on. Verse 8, how can I give up on Ephraim? How can I give up on Ephraim? Question mark. How, how can I hand over Israel? Question mark. How can I make you like Adma or like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I, I could preach all day on the symbolism of, of what's going on here. But let me just give you a little bit of a picture here. First of all, just understand the significance of the fact that God even refers to Israel as Ephraim. Ephraim is the son of Joseph, but he's not the firstborn son. Manasseh is the firstborn son. But Ephraim got the blessing of the father as if he was a firstborn son. Ephraim and Manasseh got equal blessings. In other words, God is showing us by calling his people Ephraim. He's saying, listen, I'm giving you the blessing of the firstborn even though you're not. We're sitting here this morning as recipients, as we inheriting the inheritance of Christ. But we're not the firstborn. Jesus is. But we get the inheritance of the firstborn even though we're not. Don't you see? He's, just, he's being so loving just in, in using the word Ephraim. Then you see these two cities and you're like, Adma, Zeboim, that doesn't mean anything to me. Come on, think about it. Go back to Deuteronomy 29 and remember that these two cities were, were, were located next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone and they ceased to exist on the face of the earth, these cities went with them. They ceased to exist. They're gone And it's so crazy because when you go and you read what God says, listen, this is what he says. He says, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. So you can write on your handout. You can just write down Deuteronomy 29, 23, and then put the word overthrew 
in quotations, so you can remember this. That Hebrew word overthrew, it is the word that, that, is, that is translated different ways in the Bible, but it's, it's a pretty unique word. And what's crazy is that when you look at Hosea 11, and you think, How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? And he says, my heart churns within me. That word churns? Hafak. It's the Hebrew word, overthrew. God used the exact same word. How can I make them like those cities that I hafak? My heart hafok over you. When I think about my people, my heart flips over. It overturns. Almost like when I think about this, I think about how when I think about all the hurt and the pain that my people have caused me, God's saying then I just overturn my heart. I flip it over to a new side, new slate, clean slate, blank slate. The same word he used in the destruction of these wicked cities, he uses to describe how his own heart flips over for us. And his sympathy is stirred. It's just a dramatic picture. See, some of us, we don't doubt God's faithfulness in saving us. but we doubt God's relentlessness in loving us. We know that God was faithful to save us, but we have a hard time understanding His relentlessness in loving us. And if that's you this morning, it has devastating, devastating effects in your life. You feel sometimes like God regrets saving you. This would be a moment where it would be easy for you to feel kind of like a failure, huh? Feel like, man, why didn't I, I should, I should have done more. I should do more. I should. Is that what God wants you to feel? Is that what he wants you to hear? Is that, is, that what, is that the motivation that God honors for obedience? No. He doesn't want you to obey him because you have to. He wants you to obey him because you want to. You can't obey him to get something. You can only obey him to get him. And he's saying, my heart overturns within me. My sympathy is stirred.
See, there's, no, there's not a shred of buyer's remorse in God's heart towards you. God's never once, not one millisecond, nor will he ever think to himself, maybe I should take them back to the adoption agency, turn them back in. Oh, you want to you keep living like this? Fine. I'm going to send you back to the way you used to be. No, you're freed from Egypt for, forever, once and for all, forever. Once he adopts you, it's permanent forever. It can never change. You're his son or his daughter for all of eternity. And it's, it's always going to be the best decision that you ever made. And he's always going to honor the decision that he made to bring you into his family. So, so that's not what God wants from you. He wants you to see that no matter what your yesterday looked like, the invitation is still open. It's still open to, to respond to what you hear God say. I mean, I, I know that life has a way of just clouding things out and, and it just gets so unnecessarily complicated. But that's because you're trying to know too much. Just with an just with a, a, a an open and willing heart. Just wake up every day and say, God, I want to be faithful today. Whatever you call me to do, I want to be faithful. And he'll take care of the rest. He's going to lead you to where he wants you to be, to the opportunities he wants you to have. Some of you, you, you feel some guilt right now because you've got this burning hole in your heart because you already know what it is that you've been resistant to. Okay. Surrender now. Do it. Do it. Don't wait another minute. Do it. See, we, we often miss what's holding us back. We think it's things that it's not. We think that what we need is uh, greater understanding, greater ability, greater knowledge, greater whatever. That if God would just give me this, and then I'd be able to do these things, or Maybe you're just thinking to yourself right now, I can't, I don't even, what, what could God even do with me? See, you're already out of your lane. That's not your business. Your business is saying, God, do it. 
I'll find out when I get there. So here, here's the, the big takeaway, the, the, the big obstacle that could change your life. It's not all the things that you think about all the time. Our greatest obstacle to obedience is not our flesh, but our lack of understanding the degree to which we are loved. When you get to heaven and you meet people who, we don't know exactly how this is going to look, but we can use Scripture as, a, as an illustration. There's going to be people in heaven that have far greater responsibility than other people. There's going to be people that, for example, God's given charge over ten cities and some that God's given charge over two and some that have charge over none. And when you meet people who clearly, undeniably leveraged whatever they had in this life toward the kingdom of God, not perfectly, not completely, but were faithful. When you see them in heaven, You will know that what they knew was not how it was all going to work out. Mm -mm. How the end was going to come, no, they didn't know that. They knew one thing and one thing alone. They knew to a greater degree how much God loved them. Because when you really realize how much God loves you, you'll gladly walk the plank of faith for whatever He calls you to. Why wouldn't you? Why don't you? Let's 